I needed that. (laughs) We needed that. (laughs) That was great. So absence makes the heart grow fonder. I've missed you all terribly. Although, just so you know, I can have fun without you. (laughs) Always good to be reminded. So grief is disorienting. I planned a different sermon. was going to stand out front about end-of-life issues, which the events of the week kept crowding out my original plans. Imagine that. And a gift of our long-term relationship, minister and congregation, is we have time for that some other Sunday. And as witness to violent current events with each of you, the words of Swiss theologian Karl Barth kept echoing in my head. He famously urged his fellow preachers to take the Bible and take your newspaper and read both. And he speaks from experience. He's a founding member of the Confessing Church in Germany, and it it was a movement to resist the overtake of the Protestant church by the Nazis. And it was a brave and costly effort to separate church and state. And Bart is actually the lead author of the Barman Declaration. Barman was a town in um, Germany. It's not a name that means they had to drink a lot to figure out But the Barman Declaration rejects the Nazi claim on control of religious life. The Barman Declaration argues the church's allegiance to God, and to use language we might be more comfortable with, allegiance to something larger, to our own mind and hearts in concert with other minds and hearts, to resist the influence of the lords, such as the German Fuhrer Adolf Hitler. And Bart is so committed to this that he personally mails it to Hitler. So he's a model for a religious response to the grotesqueries of a secular world. So take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both. And for me this week, I've been taking the news in one hand, coming in all the ways it comes from social media and online, and we still get the newspaper, to spiritual and wisdom writings in the other hand. And fortunately, because of who we are, that's Bible Plus. So that means the writings of the Bhagavad Gita and the Buddha and the works of Emerson and poets and artists and colleagues and contemporary theologians, scholars, social scientists. Uh, I am projecting on you, guessing, that we all come to church today with emotions close to the surface, sparked by recent shootings of black men in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis, as well as 
the gunning down of white police officers in Dallas. The news keeps breaking my heart. Lashing out violently breaks my heart. These most human, human of responses to fear and anger and confusion break my heart. And as I said in our prayer, we hold in love on this crooked path. We hold in love and compassion the violence, the death, the grief of all that were killed this week. We hold in our hearts all black men and women afraid to drive or interact with the police. We hold in our hearts all police officers who never, never know at the next traffic stop, house call, or supposed peaceful protest, what it will bring. And we have to add a new level to this. We hold in our hearts all police and civilians who have to video their interaction in order to be believed and in order to be held accountable. That's a new level of distrust amongst each other that's heartbreaking. So my request is the first thing to do is that we pay attention to all the feelings we have, all of them, all of them, grief and anger and hurt and despair and indifference and boredom and exhaustion and overwhelm enough. My own heightened feelings are a jumble. And they're such a jumble, I I didn't trust my stepping out and speaking without notes. I knew I'd wander and get too lost, and I'm not trying to rein in my feelings, but give them the most careful, considered expression possible. Because responding to this violence and this accumulative history are complex. They deserve nuance. At Vespers last month, we honored here at Hope all who were killed in the Orlando nightclub, including the shooter. Because as compassionate and religious people, we are called to value life. Even those who are evil and mistaken and wrong-headed and brutal, damaged, so too today we mourn all. We join those remembering the five police officers killed in Dallas, Ramon Padilla, Frank Pompa, Jim Sargent, Colin Brennan, and Carl Gellez. Gellez? They studied, practiced, and put their lives on the line to protect citizenry. And I want, I want well-trained police officers to show up when I need one. But then we also remember the sniper, Micah Johnson. Why? Because he is us at our worst. Have you never thought, I just can't take it anymore? And then have you taken some kind of action you regret on that overwhelm? I have. 
It's not on the scale of murdering five police officers, but it's that same impulse. Remembering Johnson is not excusing him or forgiving him a pass on this worst possible response to his anger and frustration. Remembering him is acknowledging his full humanity. That's all I want. I want to be recognized as a full, complete human being. He was a veteran trained to kill by our country. And he took those skills, honed them with more training in Dallas, and then unleashed them onto his own definition of the enemy. And at the same time, we mourn the black men killed in stops and arrests by officers. Both sides of these interactions, citizens and officers alike, are men and women frightened, on edge, anticipating the worst. So with those ratcheted up expectations, the worst often happens. So we name Philando Castile, the black man shot in Minneapolis, and Alton Sterling of Baton Rouge. Bear in mind these two men are part of a month where more than 150 blacks were killed this year by use of police force. 150 blacks have been killed this year with excessive force. Okay, now I ask you to stop. Stop. Take a breath. And what I want you to do is to check in with yourself and notice what you're feeling. Walk back through that last minute and a half as I named names and circumstances. Retrace your own responses. Are they familiar? Did you take sides? Did you feel sorrow and sympathy for the police but not for the black men? or the other way around? Or did your self-talk reaffirm already formed opinions? Did a novel thought arise? And I'm not trying to entrap you. I want you to become very clear about your own private thoughts and responses. I beg you not to judge yourself, just to become aware. I'm not setting you up for failure or entrapment. I'm asking you to step away from yourself just for a bit to observe your own response at the same time that you're taking in the world around you, this nasty swirl of tragedy. Because interrupting the violence and the calamity begins begins with knowing ourselves. It cannot start anywhere else. It begins with knowing ourselves. It means looking with clear eyes at our own reactions. And it's not a one-time judgment, because I can be brave and compassionate, which is how I prefer to think of myself, except in the next moment, with barely different circumstances, I can be cowardly and cruel. 
We are complex. As Walt Whitman writes in Song of Myself, I contradict myself. I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So we have to acknowledge that we respond as multitudes to the world around us. And these violent situations are multitudes coming together, the intersection of opposing historical forces and the culmination of different cultures, the result of incomplete or misunderstood information. I keep thinking... I keep thinking of this tight, ugly knot. A stopper knot. That's what this is, because it, it won't budge. And it's one that's pulled so tight, it's impossible to even loosen it. And that's the metaphor that I keep returning in my mind for the violence of the week. And then the strands within the rope, you can maybe see a little red one. The rope is made up of a lot of different threads and strands. Are all those different factors like laws and policies and power, power differentials, expectations, training, embedded racist systems, economics, time of day, Geographic location. They are all deeply entangled. And pulling one won't fix the others. They are all so deeply entwined. And here's what I imagine Micah Johnson, the shooter, becoming so increasingly frustrated, so frustrated by this statistical pile-up of violent force used against black men. He's a black man. And he buys into that false view of the situation, seeing it as a simple set of binary problems, black versus white, cop versus citizen, and feeling helpless and rage. He sees the best option is simplistic. He wants to cut through that knot. But he can't. It doesn't work well. Only a few strands get bent and cut. He managed to take out five valuable policemen, but the knot is still there. Now frayed and becoming even something more grotesque and tight. So the reason for looking at ourselves is to begin to first disentangle and tracing our own part. We we are in this rope and we are in this knot. Even though none of us played direct roles in Dallas or Minneapolis or Baton Rouge, we are all integrated into society and our everyday understanding of ourselves and interactions matter. So I'll call this thread, this red one, mine. And my place within the rope is such that I can often go about my day 
without really in, any significant contact with blacks. I live in an older part of town where originally blacks were not even allowed to live. Enforced laws made my neighborhood lily white. It remains that way pretty much today. And then I commute to this newer part of town, in part, Tulsa and these suburbs, developed south in response to the part of town where I live and then northern Tulsa because of the history there of violence and color and fear. So this church, all of us, coming up the hill, were embedded in this segregated development in history. We remain as a congregation primarily white for this reason. It's complicated. It's a bunch of strands. But I say all this to explain my thread in the rope is sometimes able to not touch other parts. Some call this white privilege. Honestly, I don't have to think about race much of the day unless I choose to. I also, on the other side, don't bump into the police a lot. And that's also my white privilege. And all the benefits that come often with it, the economic comfort, the trusting authority, rather than fearing police. And I'm law-abiding. Since the laws support my thriving, so it's my responsibility my responsibility to bring awareness of race and of the police, not in some generalized way, but in very concrete daily ways. It is a factor in the lives of a majority of my fellow Americans. And when a majority from a group of people that I'm not in frequent contact with say they experience things differently than I do, I have to listen. When they cry for help, I must recognize I may not see what they see, hear what they hear, feel what they feel. Let's take a simple example. A car's taillight being out is not necessarily an act of laziness or willful law-breaking. I can think of a million reasons why a taillight might be out. I've had them out. But let's, let's say it is a symptom of poverty, of stress, from needing to work two or three jobs to survive, of not having the time or resources to get it fixed, buying food, paying rent, tending to children, take precedent over repairing the car or painting the house, or you get it. At the same time, it is my responsibility to bring awareness of the police into my day. They have job pressures and situations completely different from mine. When people say, oh, it must be hard to be a minister, if I 
think about what a policeman does? Heck no. This job is easy peasy and fabulous. Police have job pressures and situations so different. I drive past the Riverside South Division twice a day, and I witness that change of traffic flow with their shift change in the late afternoon, and I notice that the afternoon traffic always goes the speed limit. In the morning, the um, traffic is not during the shift change, and people are whizzing. And policemen see and experience on a regular basis the darkest side of human nature. How can they not respond with fear? Despite all the training, we have these expectations of soldiers and policemen that they will be level-headed in the face of danger. And I'm sure you can learn to be more level-headed but not completely. So when we hear the desperate plea for simple recognition of full humanity of a person in the cry, Black Lives Matter, and at the same time hear the fear and confusion of police trying to do their jobs, when what we hear in those, we may be too caught up in our narrow perspective, our own provincial life, if we can't hear both at the same time. Because Black Lives Matter and police needs, if we see those as distinctly separate, then we're embracing this false us versus them story that the social media and regular news and even activists want us to buy into. So let's go back to that work we were doing, checking in with our thoughts and feelings earlier. If you're convinced that your view is the only right one, this tense period in history is a gift. We are lucky to be living here and now It's an opportunity to enlarge yourself. I'll say that in the first person. It's an opportunity for me to enlarge myself. It's just the place to begin to change the tired conversations we continue to have about each other, about the other, the other. In psychology, the idea that everyone is like us is the false consensus bias. This bias shows up when we see something like TV ratings and think, who on earth are these people that watch Duck Dynasty? (laughs) Or NCIS? Or Masterpiece Theater? (laughs) Or in politics, everyone is for stricter gun control. Who are these backward rubes that disagree? Oh, wait, everyone is for the Second Amendment and no government control of our guns. Who are these backward rubes that disagree? Over time, we cultivate and feed the subconscious belief that we and our friends are the same ones. We and our church are the same, sane ones. And the other side is crazy. This dividing the world into two simplistic sides 
It keeps us stuck. It keeps us knotted. It is intellectually dishonest and lazy. No longer can we have any kind of open-minded, open-hearted conversation. And the antidote to being willing to sacrifice our comfortable, limited habits, limiting habits, is we have to seek out opposing experiences. Not assume the other person is stupid or willy-nilly anti-society. If we continue to draw lines and take sides, we will continue to have recurring violence on all sides. We have to become willing to listen to and work with people not like us. In other words, recognize that the other side is made of people too. We have to enter every issue with the very real possibility that we might be wrong this time. Those who live in places we do not live, watch shows we don't watch, read books we don't read, and cope with pressures we don't have, have something to say and see the world and have a piece of the truth that we don't have. And so to begin our own singular strand in the knot and start to loosen the knot of strident opinions and reactive responses, we have to be willing to imagine that the other side is real and they have valid, valid reasons to act and feel the way they do. This isn't being soft. It is having emotional and intellectual integrity. As every debate club veteran knows, if you can't make your opponent's point for them, if you can't make your opponent's points for them, you don't truly grasp the situation. And one way to do this is to actively seek out opposing opinions. So the next step is, and this is critical, the next step is while listening to someone on the opposite side, don't try to win. Don't try to convince someone else of your viewpoint. Don't have that little chatter when you're hearing opposing ideas. Don't score points by mocking your peers, mocking them to your peers. Instead, when you're listening to someone on the opposite side, try to lose the argument, your arguments. Hear the other side. Really hear them out. And if you're having a one-on-one, which is the best way to do it, ask them to convince you and mean it. Convince me that how we apply the Second Amendment is right. Convince me that black men are not being targeted by police. Convince me. After the Orlando shootings, I called as many gay friends and colleagues as I could just to say, I'm sorry. You must be hurting. I am. And then I shut up, and I listened. Because I didn't know what else to do. I kept, uh, I'm not gay. 
And I realized, no, I, I have a heart and I, I ache for the violence. And I realized that the best work I can do, the clearest, the most helpful action, is to really reach out and listen. So I'm a little embarrassed to admit that when these shootings happened, it hadn't dawned on me since we now have a whole history of this violence and of black men and and excessive force by police. It didn't dawn on me to call my black friends until this week. Oh, I could have had a V8. <clears throat> and I realized, so in that little survey or, or inventory, that's the word I want, the little inventory of who can I call, I thought, oh, well, not just black men and women and those mothers I know trying to raise black sons, I need to reach out to the police. And I realized, wait, there's a huge gap in my life experience. I've, ha- I've gone on ride-alongs, but I, at this point, am not capable of picking up the phone with anyone and who is a policeman or a police officer or retired or whatever. So I'm committing to going on a ride-along because it's been a long time. And I want you to know any citizen can do that. You can go on a ride-along and... I want to see my city through their eyes. And the police department, there are some here who've done weeks-long training that's more in-depth and say it's life-changing. So I invite each of us this week to seek out someone, preferably a live person, whose experiences and opinions differ from yours on the violence wrecking the world. Attend a gathering, listen to the speakers, listen to a coworker. For bonus points in the spiritual exercise, turn off your usual news sources and seek out alternatives. You will get extra credit for this next week. We will have a star chart. It will be For example, Tulsa has a, an all-black newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle. Some of you may subscribe to it, but you can see it online. Aren't you curious how they're responding to this? There are blogs. And how is law enforcement discussing this? I don't mean Fox News. I've been reading articles on policeone.com which is a police training, and, um, and it's interesting. And I've been paying attention to a conservative online aggregator called Ricochet. You have to subscribe to that, pay money for it. But um, it's, it's a place where thoughtful conservatives and liberals have conversations. It's a, it's a lovely model for being willing to hear uh, another side. So may we serve as the ones who pay attention to ourselves, what our reactions are, seek out other opinions so we can untie these knots of hate and violence. May it be so.